Hello, I am Senator Tom Harkin, retired, and I'm delighted to be uh, on this podcast of ADA Live. Yo. Hi, let's roll. Let's go. Good afternoon. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute, and the ADA National Network, welcome to episode 70 of ADA Live. I'm Peter Blank, a university professor at Syracuse University and chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute. Before we move on, listening audience, you can submit your questions about the ADA at any time to adalive.org. Well, I'm sitting in beautiful Washington, D.C. in a reflective mood because I'm about to go address hundreds of self-advocates, individuals who've grown up not knowing a world without the Americans with Disabilities Act in Washington, D.C. They have new and high expectations for being included in our country and our world. Since 1990, when George Bush signed the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA has ensured protections to people with disabilities all across the country. Today, we have a very special and honored guest. That is the author of that Americans with Disabilities Act, Senator Tom Harkin, a former congressman, veteran, author, attorney, proud hockey as Hawkeye as I am, and chief sponsor of the ADA in the Senate. Senator Harkin, for many years, I've had the great honor of knowing you and being an Iowan. You represented me and my family in the United States Senate. And as I've said, my kids grew up in Iowa not knowing a world without the Americans with Disabilities Act, thanks to you. It's truly a great honor, Senator, to have you on the show. Well, Peter, thank you very much. It's honored to be with you again. And again, I thank you for your, uh, all your efforts over so many years to make the ADA uh, actually live. Uh, you know, I've often said you, you can pass a law, but it really doesn't do anything until people make it work. And so I thank you and, and uh, for all the work you've done to, to actually make it live. Well, thank you, Senator. I, I hope I'm gonna ask you a few questions that you've never been asked before. I'm going <laughs> off script, but that, but that is very difficult to do. I can do this, I hope, as a fellow Hawkeye. As I've said, I raised a family in Iowa. I understand the Iowan Midwestern soil and, and its values. Um, I thought I'd begin, Senator, by actually going back a couple of generations. Many of us know of your uh, relationship, your loving relationship with your brother, your late brother. But I wanted to ask you, maybe even going back to your parents or their parents, what is it about that Iowa soil, Senator, and your history there that really gave you this spirit, this sense of equality, this sense of dignity for all? Well, Peter, I don't know that I, I, I have a concise answer for that. I just think that there uh, has been in the state of Iowa for a long time, a sort of a spirit of social consciousness 
even going back to Civil War days, uh, 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 we had uh, one of the most active underground railroads for for getting uh, African Americans out of bleeding Kansas and Missouri up uh, into the northern states. Uh, so even at that time, uh, we were socially conscious. Uh, and I think that's sort of come down through the years. I think because of rural Iowa, small towns, people tend to know one another. They tend to, to, to help neighbors out. Um, um, it's, it, it's just been a, a kind of a, a wellspring of, oh, what would I say, neighborliness, <laughs> perhaps. Uh, you know, the, old, the old story of the independence of Iowans, well, uh, basically, uh, when the early settlers came into Iowa and they got their land from the government, by the way, um, and they would uh, they would all they would build their barns and their homes, and all the neighbors around would come and help build the barns and build the homes. You've heard of the old phrase barn raising, uh, but then after that, you were sort of on your own. I mean, you had to pull your own weight. You had to be independent, but you always knew that your neighbors were nearby to lend a hand in case something went wrong, uh, acts of God, floods, fires, tornadoes, whatever. So I think out of that sort of comes a sense that, that a kind of a dual, a duality. One, uh, we should do what we can uh, to make life better for our neighbors and neighbors being a broad concept but that we also want to ensure that people can live as independently as possible uh, without intrusions of the state or the government or big business or, or uh, repressive laws, that kind of thing. I hope that kind of sums it up. Oh yes, that's excellent. And, and of course, you were raised, as you tell many times, your late brother Frank and growing up in Iowa, what, what was your, parents' attitude towards disability, having a brother, of course, who was deaf and, and uh, which probably was not all that common in Iowa at the time. No, it wasn't. And we lived in a very small town. And so it just wasn't common at all uh, at that time. And, uh, and so when my brother got spinal meningitis at the age of, actually it was around five, but six, five, age five and six, and became totally deaf, uh, it was uh, quite a shock. And, and of course, uh, my parents, my mother mainly, uh, being uh, adamant about education, there was no place for him to go to school. And so the state came in and took him away from our home and our small town and sent him halfway across the state to the Iowa School for the Deaf, which at that time people referred to as the School for the Deaf and Dumb. Uh, so it was very traumatic for the family, but for my brother, I mean, you know, we lived in a small town, all of a sudden he can't hear, he could hear before, now he can't hear anything, uh, and he's taken away, uh, and our family didn't have money, uh, we couldn't travel halfway across the state uh, to see him in school and things like that, so he was basically on his own. That's very traumatic uh, on a family and on a person. Um, so that, that's what it was like in those days. Huh? 
And and how did your relationship with Frank evolve over the years? Well, as I started growing up, and he would come home from school and that kind of thing, that that uh, I started learning sign language. <laughs> that was one thing. Uh, and uh, then when he uh, graduated and became a baker, and there's another story there, by the way. Um, uh, he lived at home, and then he lived away from home, but he always brought his dirty clothes home to be laundered by my mom. <laughs> and and uh, and he was just a, he was just a nice big brother to me. Uh, he was a very kind person, very, but he just had that independent streak of his, uh, like that. I told you about Iwans. We believe you know you you help one another, but you got to make sure people are independent and people like to be on their own and independent. So that. You know, that sort of struck a deep chord with me at that time. And that's sort of part of the whole ADA is independent living, making sure there are supports and services, but that people can live independently. That's sort of what impressed me as I started growing up. We're, of course, going to talk about the ADA, but can you recall when it first struck you, whether you were in a congressman or veteran or whenever, um, that there was something that needed to be done in society to allow folks like Frank to have a better experience of inclusion. Well, I, Peter, I think my story is sort of appropriate for a lot of reasons, uh, because I started out with a very narrow view. Um, two things my brother said to me one, I, I'll never forget, he said once, one time he said to me, he said, I may be deaf, but I'm not dumb. Uh, and the other thing, uh, when later on, when he changed jobs and got a really good job, uh, he said to me once, he said, uh, there's only one thing I know I can't do. I can't hear. He said, there may be other things I can't do, but I don't know that until I try them. Well, that, <laughs> that struck something with me, too. I mean, the idea that people shouldn't be categorized because of their disability, uh, that that people should be allowed to try whatever they want. Uh, and uh, so that, uh, and then but I say when I started out narrowly, when I went to Congress in 1975, I was really interested in deafness. And, uh, and, um, and I uh, started working at that time, I, I had read a lot and I knew there was a new technology. Uh, a new technology that would uh, allow a deaf person to watch television and to read closed captions along what was called line 21 at the bottom of the screen. Well, I saw a demonstration of this, oh gosh, it must have been around 1976, something like that, 76, 77, somewhere in that range. And there was a big box that was made and, uh, and and this sort of predated me, but uh, um, uh, Sears Roebuck was selling this set box that you put on top of your TV, and it would decode that line 21 on pre-recorded television programs. Jennings Randolph was a senator from West Virginia, and I was then a congressman, and we delivered the first decoding box to Jimmy Carter in the White House. I think now this must have been around 78. I have to go back and find out exactly. 1978, I think. And a big demonstration of it. 
And so then I got involved in working with a lot of others to establish the um, uh, the um, uh, captioning, National Captioning Institute in Alexandria, Virginia. And they would take pre-recorded television programs and um, caption them and then send them out so that when they were played on television, if you had one of those big boxes, you could read the closed captions. Um, but they could only do that with pre-recorded. And I remember one of the early ones was also, was always the Ed Sullivan show. It was on Sunday night and it was an hour show, um, but it was always pre-recorded. And so the National Capturing Institute would get it and then line 20. So I got one of the first boxes for my brother. I, think, I don't know. I, Carter got the first one. I may have gotten a third or fourth or fifth. I, anyway, I got one really early, took it out, put it on his TV set, plugged it in. And uh, for the first time, he got to watch a television program with closed captions. Wow, this was amazing. Uh, I mean, he just, I mean, of course, then he had to just, know every program that he could watch even if he didn't like them he would watch them just to get the closed captions well this was in the early 80s um about the same time in the late 70s uh again late 70s about the time i was doing this my nephew my sister's boy kelly was in the navy he was on an aircraft carrier and he inadvertently got sucked down a jet engine of a jet on an aircraft carrier and broke his neck. 19 year old kid, big strapping boy, and uh, became uh, severely paraplegic. Actually, initially was almost quadriplegic, but he got the use of his arms back. And so that was another thing that happened in my family. I had not really known anyone before who'd used wheelchairs. I went out to Colorado where they lived and all of a sudden it hit me about how uh, there was all these mobility problems. He wanted to go to college. He hadn't been in college yet. And, but at Colorado State, uh, he wanted to take a course, but it was on the second floor. There was no elevator, so he couldn't take the course, which I thought was crazy. <laughs> I, I, I never thought about this before. And then he lived at home. His father, my brother-in-law, was quite a, a carpenter and a builder type person. So he widened all the doorways, put in a ramp, put in a bathroom. Why? Well, I'd never thought about this before. Well, all of a sudden, I mean, we wanted to go out to dinner one night. We couldn't even go to a restaurant to eat. So all of a sudden, my vision starts to broaden. It's more than just deafness. It's mobility problems. So then in the early 80s, um, now, again, I got to backtrack. We, I'd been involved in education with the Education of All Handicapped Children's Act. Now, that predated me, but I was in the house when it was being implemented. So I kind of tracked that. And uh, getting kids into schools, I was familiar with the case in Pennsylvania, Park Feet, Pennsylvania. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, a circuit court case. Uh, that, and this had to do with learning disabilities, Park being the Pennsylvania Association of Retarded Citizens, brought this to get kids uh, 
equal and appropriate education. Okay, so I started learning about that. I hadn't really thought about that. And so then in the early 80s, I became aware of this movement that was that had sprung up uh, to get a civil rights bill for persons with disabilities. Uh, and then my vision became even broader when I met Danny Piper, the son of a family in Ankeny, Iowa, a young man with Down syndrome. His folks had fought hard to get him mainstreamed under that Park B, Pennsylvania case uh, in high school. He became the captain of the football team. He didn't play football, but he took care of all the uniforms and did all that stuff. And I went once and saw him act in a high school play. He was a great actor. Uh, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, wait a minute, it's not just deafness or blindness or mobility, it's how about intellectual impairment? <laughs> uh, I hadn't thought about that before either as part of a disability community. So as I'm broadening my views, I become, I get in contact with, with this movement. Uh, that's going across America, mainly through ADAPT uh, and others. So then I go to the Senate. I get in the Senate. First thing I did in the Senate when I got there was to establish the National Institute on Deafness and Communication Disorders at the National Institute of Health. Again, I'm still focused on that. But then I, I become aware of this movement for a broad civil rights bill. And I'm on the right committee in the Senate on the health, uh, health and education committee and on the appropriations committee. And I'm on the appropriations committee with a guy by the name of Lowell Weicker, Senator Lowell Weicker from, from Connecticut. He had a son with a, I think down, with Down syndrome, that's right. And he had also, separate apart from me, had been involved in disability work. And he was the first person to actually write or introduce uh, uh, an Americans with Disabilities Act, a broad-based civil rights bill. I was his chief co-sponsor. So he was a Republican. I was a Democrat. Republicans were in charge at that time. So uh, then he got defeated uh, for re-election. And then the Democrats took over. So I took over the ADA bill and reintroduced it we had to make changes and that's how I sort of became the lead author of the ADA. I've always said I was not the first. Lowell Weicker was actually the first. And in the house was Tony Coelho in the house who led the charge in the house uh, for the house bill. Uh, now, I, that's a long-winded answer. I, I even forget what your question was now, Peter. No, it's a, it's a, it's a great answer. And if I may, I, I was gonna say, I've always been struck, particularly in this day and age, by great Americans like yourself, uh, in particular, my dear friends, Lex Frieden, Dick Thornburg, the former attorney general, and uh, of course, governor of Pennsylvania, Lex, chairman of NCD, how partisan politics uh, never really became an element of this. And, and uh, it, maybe it was a different time, or perhaps it's a different issue. What's your, what was your sense of that at the time? Well, Peter, I, I, I get asked that question a lot. Uh, could you pass, could you pass the ADA today? And my short answer is no. If we brought up the Americans with Disabilities Act, either in its its final form, 
certainly not in the earlier form, uh, it, it would never pass. It just wouldn't. It would never get through the Senate. Uh, maybe, I don't, even, I don't think it'd get through the House either. Just a different time. Uh, I mean, everything sort of came together. We had a, a decade, at least, of, of, of um, demonstrations and leaders like Lex Frieden and Justin Dart, Ed Roberts, Judy Human, and oh my gosh, I can go down the whole list of them now. That and ADAPT, uh, I know ADAPT gets hit a lot, but I always called ADAPT our Marines. They were the first to hit the beach. They took the most casualties. They were always getting arrested, but they were the ones that laid under the bus tires of the Greyhound buses and did things like that that got people thinking, wait a minute, what's this all about? Sometimes you got to kind of shake people up a little bit. Uh, and they did that uh, during the 80s. And, um, and, uh, and then, but we also keep in mind, we had the President of the United States strongly behind it. George H.W. Bush made this a cause. Uh, he supported it strongly. I have stories about that that I can relate. Um, and that was wonderful to have that kind of support. And Dick Thornburg, uh, uh, Attorney General of the United States, former governor of Pennsylvania, just wonderful, wonderful human being, uh, uh, very supportive of this. So it just kind of all came together then. And uh, as I said, uh, we had Republican Bob Dole, um, who lent his weight to it first as majority leader, then as minority leader, when we finally passed it. And, you know, Bob Dole, when he first came to the Senate, his first Senate speech on the floor of the Senate was about disability inclusion. And that was 1969, if I'm not mistaken. So, different time, perhaps, but uh, no, it, it could not pass today. So, on that, on that beautiful day on the White House lawn, when the President, President Bush was signing the ADA into law, what were you thinking? What, what was going through your mind? Well, I, I can still, oh, I remember it as vividly as yesterday, a beautiful sunshine day, beautiful, gorgeous day. And I saw all these people out there and I thought, you know, this is one of the unique moments in American history. Um, now, I wasn't there for the signing of the Civil Rights Bill. I was in the military at that time. But again, a unique bend point in terms of our own country, what we stand for as a nation, um, the whole broadening of the concept of, of inclusion and equality. Uh, I just, I thought that day was one of the bend points in our nation's history, uh, going towards what Martin Luther King Jr. once said that, that um, the arc of justice, no, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the arc of history is long and it bends towards justice, but it doesn't bend by itself. <laughs> and I thought about that saying at that time, yeah, the arc of history is long, it's bending and all these people help bend it towards more justice. Now, of course, we have not much time today. I, I feel I could speak with you for days, and I'm sure you've already done that many times in your archives, which 
uh, perhaps we can cite to uh, at Drake University uh, so people might hear more of your interviews. But the past 30 years have kind of gone by in a flash. A lot has happened. What, what stands out in your mind over the past 30 years as some of the highlights in your life as how this law has really changed society? Well, I, a, a number of points along the way. Uh, there have been some bad hits to the Sutton Trilogy of the Supreme Court in 1999 that, that set us back for nearly 10 years in terms of employment of persons with disabilities. Uh, but we got over it and we passed the ADA Amendments Act in 2008, thank you, it was in 2008, that's right, that got us back up again to where I thought we were before the Supreme Court decisions. Again, that was a good bipartisan effort also. Uh, the, um, the, and, and as you know, there's, there's four goals of the ADA, uh, uh, full participation, independent, uh, 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 equal opportunity, independent living, and economic self-sufficiency. Full participation, we, we've come quite a ways. We really have. Equal opportunity, we've made great inroads. Uh, independent living, much more independent living centers and people living independently today than ever before, although we still have the Medicaid bias, which we're still working on. Uh, I introduced the first bill on that called MACASA back in 1994, I think it was. Anyway, that's kind of getting into the weeds a little bit. But, uh, but the one thing that we haven't made any progress on, and that's economic self-sufficiency, jobs, to be short. So when I retired from the Senate, and we started the Harkin Institute at Drake University that you mentioned. Uh, we have an offshoot of that called the Harkin Summit. HarkinSummit.org. You can go look it up. HarkinSummit.org. So every year we sponsor an international conference with the private sector on only one thing, and that is expanding opportunities for um, jobs. And, and I, I, when I say jobs, I mean uh, employment. Uh, Competitive, integrated employment. In other words, real jobs, not make-believe jobs, not dead-end jobs, sub-minimum wage jobs. I mean, real employment. And so we've had uh, four of those, three in Washington. We just had our fourth one in Paris, France. We joined with Humanity and Inclusion. I hope next summer to be in Tokyo. So the idea, and we're getting more and more businesses on board to really focus on employment. That's the one place where we just haven't made much progress. And uh, that's where I spend the majority of my time right now on, 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 on that issue. Well, Senator, I could certainly spend a lot of time with you and just listen and listen. But um, maybe the last question is, I, I think you're a prophet. <laughs> Nobody's a prophet, really. But uh, uh, so Frank's grandnieces and nephews, Kelly's grandnieces and nephews, your kids, you know, your grandkids. What do you hope for them over the coming years in this area? And, and, um, and what does the next generation, what's the responsibility of the next generation perhaps to, 
to continue this drive forward? Well, I, I hope what we'll see is that uh, more full inclusion in all aspects of society, uh, especially for young people. But it, as you said, I think in your, you know, when you opened this up, you talked about the ADA generation, a lot different than the generation before. Uh, kids who have grown up with the ADA are not going to take a back seat. Uh, they're going to be more proactive. Uh, and I think their children and their nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters, they're going to be more active. Uh, so as we have broadened this out, I, I see a future where uh, a, a young person with a disability, either uh, acquired disability or born with a disability, whether it's physical or intellectual, mental, or a combination of both, will really have all kinds of vistas opened up where they can really dream about what they want to do. And they won't be told, like my brother was, you can be a baker, a shoe cobbler, or a printer's assistant, and that's all you can do. Well, we've gone beyond that. But now, opening up vistas and new horizons. I just saw this, the, uh, uh, the uh, actress who just got the Tony Award. First person using a wheelchair to get a Tony Award for a stage performance. Uh, that's, now again, role models. So now, how many young people with disabilities can say, well, if she can do that, I can do that too. Or engineers. Uh, for example, one other example. We're building a new building at Drake University for the Harkin Institute. Brand new building. Uh, I insisted that if we're going to build a building, it ought to be state-of-the-art accessible. Not just the minimum standards, but state-of-the-art. And not just for mo mobility impairment, but for sight impairment, hearing impairment, intellectual disabilities, everything. Well, turns out they searched around, they found an architecture firm and the architect is actually a person with a disability. That's fantastic. Think about that, an architect. So that's what I see in the future. Young people thinking I can be an architect, I can be a senator, I can be, a, I can be president, I, I can be, um, a hedge fund operator, I can, I, I, I can do anything. That, to me, is really where we're headed. I hope, and and uh, and 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 more people in competitive, integrated employment, real jobs. Uh, I, I again, I can go on that. I tried to. I, that was my last bill in the Senate before I left. Was to change some of the voc uh, voc rehab so that young people with IEPs aren't shunted into dead-end sub-minimum wage jobs anymore. Uh, so that's, that's, that's what I see. More inclusion, uh, uh, young people can dream and hope and try to do different things and, and don't be afraid of failure. Uh, failure is a part of life. Uh, I always say to young people with disabilities, try something. Don't be, if you fail, that's okay. I failed at things in my lifetime too. <laughs> until I found out what I was, maybe was good at or something. But don't worry about it. Try something. If you don't fit, if it doesn't fit you, try something else. That's life's experience. So to me, uh, that's, that's what I see. That's my vision for the future. Well, Senator, I, I can say I know firsthand Midwestern Iowan modesty, but I can I can tell you in my book, and I know millions of others, you are a great American. 
And by that, I mean your legacy and the people you work with will transcend you as an individual, but makes the world better for all of us. You have done that, Senator. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us today. I hope it's the beginning of a conversation and I would strongly suggest to our thousands of listeners that they tune in or look up the Harkin Center at Drake University because you're just hearing the tip of the iceberg today. Thank you very much, Senator. Well, Peter, thank you. That's overly kind and overly generous of you to say those things. And, and again, it's not false modesty on my part, but anytime someone says that about me, especially in this context, uh, what comes to my mind are all of those that laid under those Greyhound bus wheels, that marched, that got arrested, uh, the Ed Roberts who wouldn't give up, and the Justin Darts that went to every state in the nation, and the Lowell Wikers, and all of the, the Tony Quayles, all the people that did all of this. It, 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 it wasn't one person, it was thousands of different people uh, all kind of coming together to make this happen. Well, thank you very much again, Senator. And I do hope that this is the beginning of a conversation that many of our listeners will continue. Thank you all and have a fantastic day. Okay, thanks, Peter. I appreciate it. Hi, listeners. This is Barry Whaley, Director of the Southeast ADA Center. And as always, we want to thank you for joining us for this episode of ADA Live. As a reminder, this episode and all previous ADA Live episodes are available on our website at adalive.org, as well as on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com backslash ADA Live. All episodes are archived in a variety of formats, including streamed audio and accessible transcripts. You can download as podcasts. It's as easy as going to the podcast icon on your mobile device and searching for ADA Live. Listening audience, check out the ADA Celebration Toolkit from the Southeast ADA Center and the ADA National Network. Celebrate the ADA in July and year-round with the toolkit or the media kit, publications, and other resources to keep the celebration going. That address is www.adaanniversary.org. As a reminder, if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can submit your questions at any time online at adalive.org, or you can contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. And as a reminder, all calls are free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Orazda with Beth Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marcia Schwanke, and me, Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. We'll see you next episode.